The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the available lines ahead of the college basketball tournament on the DraftKings Sportsbook app. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsibility responsible gaming resources today on the solax show we will be going over Wentz trade rumors we're like a whole week into this thing and there's still no movement on that front as of thursday morning so i'll be going through what i think the latest is on Wentz's potential trade destinations and potential trade packages as well as what could be the ramifications if this staring match transfers all the way into march on the second half of the show we'll be talking to john ledyard of pewter report about the performance of the bucks defense in the super bowl namely how they responded to a Chiefs offense that's been so good throwing the football on all defenses, including theirs, in the regular season. And if the way the Todd Bowles defense matched up, X's and O's wise, is indicative of how Jonathan Gannon's defense may work here in Philadelphia. So stick around for that. But first, Carson Wentz. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Solak Show. This is episode one of the solo flight of the graduation of Benjamin Solak, no longer joined by Michael Kiss here with you on BGN Radio. We do appreciate you swinging by. Uh, for longtime listeners of BGN Radio, it is an exciting day, though it, it is a sad day. After many, many years of working with Michael Kist here and, and sitting in the co-host seat waiting for him to finish up the intro so that I could finally talk. Uh, that's not going to be my role anymore. Michael is now on to working for the Mothership, working for SB Nation, managing all of the NFL team podcasts, which is very exciting for him, and we're so glad that he's got that. But accordingly, uh, it's now my voice you hear at the top as we come in now to the newly styled and newly branded Solak show. Uh, I will say I, I went through a couple different names that I liked, and eventually Mike just told me, just call it the Solak show. And I was like, I don't really like that. That's like the Kiston Solak show, and I'd rather give it a name. And he was like, nah. Just leave your name in it. <laughs> so that's where we're at right now. Uh, it's me with the Solak Show. How the show is going to work over the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months and into the season will be it will always come to you in two parts. So the first part will be very Eagles focused. It will be related mostly to the news of the week, especially as the Eagles continue to dominate national news cycles. More on that in a second. Uh, and the second part will be with a guest and have more of a national scope. In the first part, I may bring on another member of the BGN radio crew uh, to discuss whatever's going on in the world of the Eagles, especially as we get into the doldrums of summer and the offseason. But for now, it'll be me going through the Carson Wentz trade rumors, the, the things that I've most recently seen and heard on that front, where I think this all ends up and how it could affect the Eagles moving forward. So the analysis that you're accustomed to, if you're a Kist and Solak show listener, that'll be sitting here for you at the top of the show. We'll throw it to break, and when we come back, we'll work with the interview on a more national scope. And it'll always be tied to the Eagles. In this case, it'll be about 
Jonathan Gannon, the new Eagles defensive coordinator, what his defensive structure may look like in relation to a big national story, which this week was, of course, the Super Bowl. For those who didn't watch, Todd Bowles and the Buccaneers defense dominated the Kansas City offense. Patrick Mahomes won the game 31 to 9, really clipped the wings of what's been the, the most high flying offense in the NFL over the past couple of seasons. And accordingly, it's an interesting question as to what they did on the chalkboard. If it translates to all other defenses playing Patrick Mahomes, how much of it was conditional on the fact that the Chiefs were missing both of their starting tackles, banged up offensive line, and that structure that Todd Bowles ended up with, which we're going to talk about more specifically, some two high safety looks, rushing with four, is very similar to how Jonathan Gannon and the Indianapolis Colts called defense when Gannon was the defensive backs coach there. And so we're going to talk about if that mold of defense is going to be the predominant mold of defense as defensive coordinators continue to evolve and evaluate ways to respond to the ever dangerous passing offenses of the modern NFL. Through draft season, we'll end up talking with a lot of people who who cover the draft in specific ways. We'll end up focusing on specific players for some episodes, focusing on larger draft trends for other episodes. It's going to be a place where if there's an interesting football conversation to be had, I want to have it here on the network. I want to bring it to the BGN Radio family. For the sake of understanding our Eagles better and understanding the games that they play better, and also for the sake of just simply understanding the league better and being better football fans. So I'm excited to bring a one-two punch to you on the Soul Action. I'm excited to come over the top and then with a guest as well. But more exciting than anything else, really, is uh, the potential of the Eagles moving Carson Wentz for significant return. Uh, The Carson Wentz trade rumor mill has been churning away now for the better part of a week and looks like there's uh, no end in sight. As of right now, Thursday morning, the last we've heard is that we're at an impasse between Philadelphia and Chicago. Certainly, Indianapolis is still a player, but it seems like the Eagles are going to be dealing Carson Wentz to the Bears. That's how it seemed the whole time. Nothing that I've read indicates to me otherwise. We've heard rumors that there may be other mystery teams involved, and I think perhaps there are. I wouldn't be surprised if the Indianapolis Colts are calling, of course, but also the San Francisco 49ers have called to check in. If the Raiders are really willing to move Derek Carr, wouldn't be surprised if they're checking in. Carolina has been active on the quarterback market. Wouldn't be surprised if they're checking in. So certainly there are other teams involved, but right now the, the majority of the talks and the majority of the smoke has been around the talks with the Bears. The Eagles seem to be at an impasse with the Bears. If you look at uh, Bleeding Green Nation Radio, where we have our most recent updates on, in the rumor mill, uh, you'll see that BLG walked through an interview with uh, Brandon Robinson, who contributes at Windy City Gridiron, the SB Nation site for the Chicago Bears. And Robinson broke down from what he's hearing from people in Chicago. They, they made a good offer. It included a first-round pick. The Eagles have maintained their point. Howie Roseman has has held fast to the fort and said, we want multiple first round picks. We are pursuing a Stafford-esque deal. The Bears are unwilling to reach that. And now the Bears are starting to get itchy. The Bears are starting to get impatient because they know the Eagles don't have anybody else on the hook for two ones. The Bears believe they have the best offer out. I'm also very confident that the Bears have the best offer out for Carson Wentz. And they don't anticipate going any higher and don't think that whatever Roseman does negotiating wise over the next several weeks, that they're going to move to that point. And of course, as everybody knows, the Eagles are on a bit of a running clock here on March 19th, the third year of the league new year, Carson Wentz's $10 million roster bonus activates. And uh, from an accounting perspective, whichever team Wentz is on, on March 19th, will be responsible for paying him out that $10 million bonus. No trade, if the Eagles make a trade for 
Carson Wentz tomorrow. They send him to the Bears tomorrow. That trade's not really real until the next league year, right? Until March 17th when the league year begins. Because currently we're still in the 2020 league year. And in the 2020 league year, the trade deadline, which usually happens in the middle of the season, has already occurred. So we're currently behind the trade deadline of the 2020 league year. There's no way to do a trade. So whatever, if the Eagles make a trade today, or if they make it on March 16th, in reality, they're making it on March 17th. And so the, the team that acquires Wentz will then have him on the books for March 19th and subsequently be responsible for that $10 million roster bonus. That running clock isn't actually as big of a concern as it may seem. Uh, there were reports going back into December from ESPN that Carson Wentz would be willing to work with the Eagles to facilitate a trade, right? And that was a very open-ended statement. And that could mean anything from, here, I'm willing to go to any team. I'm not, I don't have a specific team in mind. To, I am going to pay you guys $20 million back of cap space by writing you a humongous check. Please, dear God, get me out of Philadelphia. And anything in between. Both of those possibilities exist. The pay you $20 million in cap space thing is kind of nuts and like maybe still could happen, but would be ludicrous. Uh, There's a lot that can go into helping the Eagles facilitate a trade. One of those things is that he could simply move his roster bonus date back. The Eagles could offer him a quote-unquote restructure that has that roster bonus moving from March 17th to May, or excuse me, from March 19th to May to June to July. And and that's also interesting because once you get after June 1st, you can trade with a post-June 1st designation and that changes the cap hits. And so uh, this is something I've written about on Bleeding Green Nation before. Uh, If you're Go to bleedinggreennation.com and you find the Solak Show article for this podcast. You'll see the link shared. But in that article, I break down how there's little finagling that can be done just to alleviate some of that stress. And so while that March 19th deadline certainly does exist, from what I understand about the language in the contract and the way that the cap is managed, the Eagles can move that date back so long as Carson Wentz agrees with it and they, they sign that deal accordingly and create more time for themselves. So that, that's some of the freedom that exists. So that March 19th date isn't super concerning, but it doesn't change the reality that the Bears and the Eagles are just staring each other down the barrels at this point. The Eagles want multiple firsts. The Bears have put a first and change on the table. The Eagles are really pushing for, uh, from what I understand, this year's first round pick from the Bears, 20 overall. And the Bears really are pushing to keep that pick. Uh, Ryan Pace, their general manager, is in a situation where he's hanging on to his job by a thread. So he doesn't want to be trading current first round picks. Those are picks that he can't use. Uh, He wants to be trading future first round picks because if it works, then he keeps his job and he'll deal with that problem when he gets there. If it doesn't work, he's fired. And then it becomes somebody else's problem to deal with the fact that Ryan Pace traded away the 2022 first round pick or the 2023 first round pick, what have you. So they're at this point where I don't know what the next domino to fall is going to be. And that's the tricky thing to figure out here. Who can last longer if nothing changes over the next day, the next three days, the next week? It's probably Philadelphia. If you're able to move that March 19th date back, then it's Philadelphia. If not, it becomes a different conversation. What is certain What is true and inarguable is that Carson Wentz does not want to be back in Philadelphia next year. I know that he hasn't explicitly said to the media. I know he hasn't sat down and and said, I requested a trade. I don't want to play here next year. That doesn't really happen that often anyway. But okay, I know he hasn't done that. I know if he did that, that would really clear things up. However, he has not said this. 
but it's very easily readable in the process, right? I mean, they, they fired Doug Peterson and they brought in Nick Sirianni, conceived to be a olive branch to the Wentz camp. Look, we just got Frank Reich's underling. You like Frank Reich, right? Yeah, come work for this guy. It's going to be great. Yet after the Sirianni hiring, you have the Rappaport eventual, we have the, the Carson Wentz reports like yada yada, you know, the Eagles are taking trade. Oh, Matt Stafford was traded. Now the, the quarterback market turns to Wentz, whatever. And then you have the Schefter report, which is uh, Wentz is going to be traded, which is like at the time it was like, okay, cool, Shefty, breaking news. Sick. Yeah, we know. But looking back now, given what we know about how this Bears market has stalled and the Colts won't go any higher than their offer, which is not really predicated on first round picks, whatever. Given what we know, that was actually kind of a ludicrous news break. That was kind of nuts because it, it was Schefter saying, like, this ship is sailing. This bridge is burned. It's done. Like, Wentz is not coming back to Philadelphia, which the longer this goes on, the more nagging doubt you get as an Eagles fan watching this, thinking to yourself, what if they just bring him back? Like, what if they just don't get the deal that they want? And what if they just bring them back? And in order to do that, in order to bring Carson back, they would have to make that Schefter report wrong, which they can, you know, it's just Schefter reporting, like it's not like sacred or anything. But it is to say that Schefter was confident enough in what he was hearing from people, and this is Schefter we're talking about, that he was confident saying, all right, there's there's no way the Eagles are getting Wentz back, which is like, you can imagine that being Lori saying to Roseman, go get me the best deal for Wentz. As such, it's it's easy to read now this waiting period by Roseman as ensuring he gets the best deal. This is negotiating work. This is, you know, betting into a bluff. This is part of the game. Ryan Pace is a bit of a fish. You know what I mean? Ryan Pace got taken for fir- two first round picks for Khalil Mack, which like they got Khalil Mack, which was awesome. Um, but also it was a very high price to pay for a non-quarterback. Uh, Roseman knows Pace's job is not safe. It's certainly not. It's certainly less safe than Roseman's job is. Uh, Roseman's also been a negotiator a lot longer than Ryan Pace has and has a much more successful trade history than Ryan Pace does. Roseman still is operating from a position of power here relative to Pace. It's also important to note that the Bears have checked in on the quarterback market and have largely found nothing. They have no uh, leverage point to say, all right, if you don't give us Wentz for X and Y, we're just going to go get blank for Z and A, right? So they called in on Derek Carr for the Raiders, checked in, and that price was too high, which makes sense because Derek Carr is better than Carson Wentz right now. Uh, I don't think that they're going to be going after Teddy Bridgewater. They're, they have no interest in bringing, bringing Mitchell Trubisky back. That's been said from the jump is that there's there's no reunion happening there. So unless they're going to ride with Nick Foles, unless they're going to sign Jameis Winston in free agency, Cam Newton in free agency, which they weren't even interested in bringing Cam in last year. Wentz is their best option. Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy, they have to win football games now. And the most high ceiling quarterback remaining on the market is Carson Wentz. Accordingly, even through this prolonged waiting period, even through this agonizingly st- stupid staring contest where you're just like Roseman it's a first round pick for Wentz take it and run it's robbery he's still probably operating from a position of power this is still a situation that I think favors the Eagles does that mean they're going to get out of this with two first round picks not necessarily but to me it's still on the table to me I think it's still a, a like a possible maybe even likely outcome I would be stunned 
if they don't get at least a first-round pick out of the Bears, I think it's possible that they still get two. What the Eagles and Roseman have to do now is not blink. What, what, what must be done is simply saying, that's our price. You can go try to solve this, your problem. You got a big quarterback problem. We don't. We have Jalen Hurts. We're great. We love Jalen Hurts. He's the best. You have a big quarterback problem. You got to go solve that somewhere, somewhere else, or you come back to us and pay us what we're due for Carson Wentz. And then they can't blink. They cannot say, oh, we'll do this. Oh, we'll do that. Because then all of a sudden it becomes Ryan Pace trying to get the best deal. You've set the, the figure. He's got to come meet it. Or otherwise, he's not going to get the quarterback he needs to potentially be a playoff team again in Chicago. So you're still operating from a position of power and sit there. Should they just take a first for Wentz? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's amazing to me they're getting a first for Wentz, let alone multiple firsts for Wentz. If they do get multiple firsts for Wentz, it's going to be a huge coup. I have no faith that they're going to actually draft good players with those first round picks, but it's fine. It would still be tremendous return on a player who just had a historically bad 2020 season. So yes, I, if they if to, if this podcast comes out and two minutes later, it's like the Eagles and the Bears have traded Carson Wentz. It's a first round pick and next year's second. I will still be very pleased. But I think that they're going to try to sit and wait and really squeeze the Bears for all that they're worth. The final note here that's important is that Jalen Hurts mentioned, right? The Eagles critically have to be able to leverage their confidence in Jalen Hurts as a starting quarterback. The Bears can't feel like the Eagles are worried about their quarterback position because you don't want the Bears putting much value in Nick Foles. You don't want the Bears thinking that the Eagles could be adding Nick Foles to start because then Foles starts becoming a better trade piece. And let's make it very clear. Foles is in this trade deal because the Bears and the Eagles both know that Carson Wentz does not want to be in the same locker room as Nick Foles. It's, this is about getting Foles out of Chicago to keep Carson Wentz happy. Foles is not a significant part of this trade deal right now. But if you allow it to be seen or to be thought that you think Foles might come in and win the starting job over Jalen Hurts, which like is possible. You know, Hurts was fine, but wasn't amazing to go through those those four games that end the season. Foles has been successful in very similar passing offenses to this offense before. In 2013 with Chip Kelly, very similar passing offense. Foles threw 27 touchdowns to two picks, and he was wearing midnight green when he did it. And we know what Philadelphia does to that guy. But you cannot let it be conceived that Foles matters to you in this deal. And, and the hope is that Philadelphia is, to keep their leveraging position strong, viewing Foles just as a throw-in to keep Carson Wentz happy for Chicago and as no more. Uh, and then if they want to open competition that with Foles and Hurts in the offseason, that's fine. If they want to give the job to Hurts and have Foles be that Papa Bear backup role, which he's been in before, that's fine. If they want to draft a quarterback in the top six, I would love it. Uh, but at this stage, you have to posture as if you're very confident Hurts is your starting quarterback. It's what allows you to move Wentz, and it's what it allows you to keep Foles as a cheap part of the trade deal. So whoever the Eagles starting quarterback ends up in 2021, Hurts, Foles, or otherwise, I don't believe it will be Carson Wentz. I don't think he comes back here under any circumstances. I believe that ship has sailed. I do think that the Eagles can extend their window beyond March 19th, and that in doing so, they're going to be able to outlast the Bears, who are at a much 
more tricky situation and having to make a move for the quarterback and to build out a team that they think is going to be able to compete such that Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy can keep their jobs. So that's where I read the Carson Wentz situation right now. I don't envision much news or much change coming over the next couple of days. We may see movement when we get to the weekend, but there's no reason for the Eagles to be the ones to knock down the first domino. It should be Chicago or Indianapolis or one of these mystery teams coming in and making an offer to get this market going. We'll see if it happens, whether it does or it doesn't. The Carson Wentz trade rumor mill and the consequences thereof uh, will continue to be a big part of Eagles discourse over, I'm sure, the next week, the month and probably the years to come. So that's where I stand on Carson Wentz. Uh, We're going to throw this thing to break, pay some bills. When we come back, John Ledger of Pewter Report and a shift in the conversation to the Super Bowl to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, John Ledger, what's it feel like? First year covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Move down to Tampa in the middle of the season. They immediately win a Super Bowl. All the credit goes to you. Jason Light has given you the Lombardi Trophy. Congratulations. Thank you. It looks great in my office. Uh, I very much appreciate that. Congratulations. And the recognition that clearly it was due to myself and my family moving down here <laughs> during the Bucks bye week. That was the real reason. People are going to search for football reasons for the team's turnaround. But we moved during the bye week, and they didn't lose after that. So you tell me, Ben, what is the biggest reason why the Bucs are Super Bowl champions today? It's really quite something because our uh, we used to work together at the Draft Network and our, our co-worker, uh, Trevor, Trevor Sycama, who I would do the Locked On NFL Draft podcast with, a long time lived in Tampa Bay, left, and immediately <laughs> afterward, the Lightning won the Stanley Cup. The Rays just made it to the World Series, right? They didn't win. Right, I, don't they know, lost, but it was, yeah. I think it was in seven games they lost. If I right. Or and then the Buccaneers win, win their Super Bowl. And so basically, yeah, Tampa traded up, Trevor to you, and immediately just a champion, Champa Bay, as uh, Jim Nance called them on the broadcast. Is that a thing, Champa Bay, or no? Ah, they're trying to make it a thing. Yeah. I, it um, doesn't, I don't really love it. I don't let's think let's hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John went through for uh, Pewter Report a lot of the changes that both coaching staffs, the offensive coaching staff under Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich, and then the defensive coaching staff under Todd Bowles made across the playoffs. And then, of course, in that Kansas City game. And that's what the main thing I want to talk to you about, John, because I think nobody thought if the Bucks were going to win this Super Bowl, it would be done because they held the Chiefs to nine points. There was the whole, if you score 35, sure. But holding the Chiefs to nine, to me, was the, the shocking bit. And, and Bowles is kind of the main guy to get the feather in the cap. So from a 50,000-foot a view, general sense, what did Tampa Bay do to hold this Kansas City offense, with all their injuries, certainly, but this Kansas City offense with Patrick Mahomes, what did they do to hold them to nine points? How did the X's and O's fit on the chalkboard? 
Well, I think that the biggest thing that they did was change. It was even from earlier in the playoffs, honestly. Once you start to tweak your identity a little bit, it becomes a little bit easier to say, okay, this this might need fixing too. And okay, now we change this and this improved. Now let's not be afraid to change this. And so, you know, for most of the season, as you know, if you saw the Bucks, they were the Bucks were predominantly a spot dropping cover three team. They would mix in quarters and long down and distances in certain situations. Obviously, there would be man coverage at times, but it was never predominantly man coverage, predominantly press man coverage, which struck many people as unusual, given the fact that they had drafted Carlton Davis and Jamel Dean and Sean Murphy Bunting, all guys with press man coverage backgrounds with the length and the size and the athleticism that you would expect to see in press, not necessarily in zone. And while some, while sometimes Carlton Davis and Jamel Dean flashed in zone, Sean Murphy Bunting really struggled it was never really seemed like a good fit. There was a clear difference when Carlton Davis was allowed to press between that and anything else that he did. And so it became really puzzling throughout the year when they would not deviate from this strategy. And then they had some guys get banged up. Sean Murphy Bunting was playing hurt. Jamel Dean missed a couple games, I think, including the last Chiefs game, if I recall correctly, the Week 12 one. And then Carlton Davis was was hurting a little bit and not at 100%. He missed the game or two at the end of the year. And so there was – kind of a little bit of flux. There was kind of a unit in flux a little bit, and, and they really got lit up by Atlanta twice in the last two weeks of the regular season. Then they started the playoffs against Washington, Ben, and it is just like, okay, Taylor Heineke is lighting right. this team up. Exactly. And, not for multiple, right, <laughs> and not for multiple drops by Washington players, his numbers, which already look great, would have looked even better. And That's newly he got, extended Taylor Heineke to you, by the way. You watch your mouth. Right, 8.75 right. million over two years. Let's 8. go. 8.75 million. And Sean Murphy Bunting immediately <laughs> tweeted out something like respect because they, he, <laughs> gave him more of a hard, he gave him more of a hard time than Patrick Mahomes, which, of course, who could have, who could have imagined such a thing? It was, it was an unbelievable performance by Heineke. Maybe in retrospect, we were a little bit harsh on, on Tampa Bay when he just made a lot of pretty – otherworldly plays in that game but he also got out of structure you know they did apply some pressure but they could not get to him they couldn't get him down and it was just like oh my goodness if they can't do if they can do this against buck the bucks defense which had already been struggling you know with immobile quarterbacks like matt ryan uh, man it's going to be a rough go of it uh, when they face some of the best in the league so they went into the saints game they switched things up they played a ton of press man coverage which everyone had clamored for the last time they played them. I mean, fans were were saying this, like, mm-hmm. and, and they did it, and they crush them, and then you know, and they defensively at least they 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 really dictate their will the entire game. Four turnovers going to the Packers game, more even more press man coverage. Uh, again, I think disrupting their guys a lot at the line of scrimmage. They do give up some plays. Aaron Rodgers will do that to you, but they also go to a two man scheme, which they had run. I think they were at the bottom of the league in two-man reps throughout the entire year. They go yeah, to less two than 10%. Man. Yeah, it was like ridiculous. They go to two-man in the second half like heavily, make a ton of plays. And they're playing with their backup two safeties, make a ton of plays, eventually stop the Packers on the goal line, force the field goal, whatever. You know, play well enough in that second half to get out and, and get out alive. Uh, again, five sacks help too. Then they go into the Super Bowl, and it's like, okay, we're not going to necessarily press this team the whole time, which was smart again. But they deviate from that and they adjust. They go too high. They go three safeties. They play dime defense, things they had just not done all season long, Ben. They were just doing them against Kansas City. And Kansas City didn't know what to expect. They expected single-eye coverages and maybe even some of the press that they'd shown recently. And they had that kind of stuff. Those kind of beaters worked in there. And the Bucks really just didn't do what, what Kansas City thought they were going to do. And when they were in zone, which they weren't a lot during the game, it was an aggressive matchup zone 
let's chase down guys in our zone, stick to them, push them, pass them off, you know, get to a new spot. It was just very aggressive the whole time. Not at all what they looked like in the regular season. Complete 180 schematically, execution with the same players. Probably one of the most ridiculous turnarounds that I've seen in all my years of covering football. Right, so most ridiculous turnaround, right? That's that's what it is. It's like, okay, this Bulls defense completely changed identity-wise. Now, you and I have been doing this for long enough to know there have been a lot of teams with a lot of opportunities to change their identity late in the season, deep in the playoffs. They have not done so, and it has been to their detriment. So I'm curious, what what was it that broke it for Todd Bowles? What was it that broke it for Tampa Bay and their philosophical approach? Like I'm thinking about Mike Pettin coming into that San Francisco 49ers NFC Championship game last year and just having every team run it down his throat and being like, all right, San Francisco, they can only run the ball. Let's just let them do that. And and Jimmy Garoppolo attempted like eight passes in that game. And and the Niners just accepted what the, and gave them. That was such like an opportunity to change your identity, and it wasn't taken. You said Bulls was a spot-dropping cover-three defense. Eagles fans will know Jim Schwartz for five years here was a spot-dropping cover-three defense. When he was getting shredded, guess what he was? He was a spot-dropping cover-three defense, and that wasn't going to change. So what What specifically, like why, why did Bowles, like what was it about this Tampa team? Was it he felt like he had the personnel to do it? He felt like he had the, the go-ahead from Bruce Arians? Why were they able to make the change when so few coordinators do? I really don't know for sure. I mean, I can speculate and say that I've talked to people in New York that were covering him when he wasn't changing in the regular season, and they got you know, lit up by Jared Goff. Jared Goff looked like his best game of the year against them. <laughs> and then, you know, Drew Brees looked unbelievable back in that week, eight or nine, whenever it was matchup. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Patrick Mahomes, you know, even for Patrick Mahomes measures, the first time they played, that was a ridiculous performance. I mean, 300 some yards in the first half, you know, and, they dropped an 80-yard touchdown, an 89-yard touchdown in that game. Otherwise, his numbers, he'd have been up over 500 easy passing yards. And so, I mean, they, I mean I'm mean, i talking about, Ben, they were getting housed to such a degree. The ball was barely hitting the floor, the, barely hitting the ground by, like, the cause of the Tampa Bay defenders. If they did, it was just a missing a, a pass or something like that. I mean, Nick Foles came out and had a good game against these guys. You know, there was just – it was consistently struggling with, with the things being asked to do them, and there was no deviation from that. So when the playoffs came around, I thought the offense had really found their way, but defensively I was like, I just don't think he's going to change. I mean, he just hasn't hasn't shown any indication of changing. You know, After the bye, it was like, man, all these things changed uh, with the offense, and you were excited, but defensively things really didn't look any different than they were before. They still committed a lot of numbers to the run. That was still their priority. They wanted to play single high so they could commit those numbers to the run. They have been the best run defense in the NFL for a number one for two straight right. seasons now under Bulls, and they're obviously good at it. But at the end of the day, you and I both know that stopping the pass matters a lot more than stopping the run, and they just weren't doing that really. I mean, the Lions game, sure, you know, with whoever was in a quarterback at that point for the Lions when Stafford got hurt on the first drive of the game. But Matt Ryan lit him up twice, fifteen weeks 15 and 17. So, again, it was just kind of this – it just wasn't really any any reason to think that things were going to change, especially after the Heineke performance. But after the Washington game, Bruce Arian said, he said, we said somebody asked him, is this performance good enough to win against New Orleans and Green Bay? And they didn't say Kansas <laughs> City, but thinking along those lines. And he said, offensively it was, defensively it was definitely not good enough. And he was very, you know, as Arians often is, Arians, he was yeah. right. He was very blunt about that. And I don't think Todd Bowles needed any. I mean, Bowles also, you know, was the same way. He was, you know, that, that way he didn't play nearly well enough. And so I think that that was a, I don't know if it was the, a turning point where he was just like, enough is enough. We got to change something up. 
I don't know if the fact that they got so completely destroyed by the Saints in back in week eight or week nine or whatever it was now and and, and lost 38 to three again where the Saints like didn't even break a sweat on offense putting up what 28 to 31 or something like that I forget what it was in the 31 I think in the first half on the Bucs um, I think when you get beat like that by a team and you have the ability to go back to the tape and look at it and say okay we had a game plan we thought was going to work we didn't it didn't work in any capacity I mean it was like the most every single draft. Remember, the Saints fumbled on like the two yard line. They could, they literally everything they did was successful in that game. So he right. went with a complete. I think when you have something like that happens, it makes you go with a complete opposite approach. And I think that's really what happened. And it started that change. And like I said, once he said, "Okay, we're going to go completely away from what we did in that week, and we're going to press these guys, and we're not going to focus on blitz, and we're gonna, just going to rush for, and we're not, we know we're not going to get home. We're going to get our hands up. We, you know, we're going to sh- uh, just smother everything underneath as much as we can. We're going to throw off the timing of these shorter routes. Um, you know, that seems pretty obvious, but it wasn't what they did the last time they got crushed. And I think when he totally deviated his strategy and saw that, and probably heard from his players how much confidence they gained and being able to press and get physical. And I mean, they gained an edge physically in that game that they had not had all season, and they really kept that throughout the Super Bowl. So I think those were all contributing factors to changing his his mind and his strategy. Right. It's kind of that age old adage, you know, like it's tough to beat the same team twice, let alone three times. Like, you know, when you get those divisional rematches like the Bucks and the Saints had in the playoffs, like you're you're just eventually so you're going to give something. So, right, those those ideas, right, Bulls was a single high team, and then they come out, they play a two-high look pre-snap on 87% of their plays, which is the highest Bulls number over five seasons as a defensive coordinator. They blitz on 9.6% of their dropbacks, which is the lowest of a Bulls defense over five seasons as a defensive coordinator. Those are all uh, next-gen stats numbers. The Those tenants, right, two high shells, blitzing four, rushing with four, just completely non-Bullsian. It takes advantage of how weak the Chiefs' offensive line was. And as, as has been well documented, they were down three starters. Andrew Wiley's at tackle. Mike Remmers is at tackle. Nightmare situation for the Chiefs. The Bucks took advantage. What I'm curious of is, is, do you think that they would have come at the same approach if that Chiefs' offensive line were healthy? Because we know how much Bowles loves to blitz. This Tampa Bay Buccaneers team was fifth in the league in blitz rate, 39%. So they, they, they quartered their blitz rate for this game from like 40% down to 10. If that had been a fully functional offensive line, you're probably not getting the same pressure with four. You're definitely not getting the same pressure with four. Would Bowles have still used the same approach? Or do you think it was a little bit this Chiefs offensive line looking fat for the taking, right? That he was able to make such a big change. I think his approach wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered for his approach, nor by the way, do I think that Eric Fisher being in the game would have mattered for the outcome, to be honest with you. Right. Um, you know, they had played most of the season without Mitchell Schwartz. Kalicho assembly got hurt at the beginning of the year for them. Uh, Lauren Duvernay. I totally Tardif. forgot they had Kalicho assembly until yeah. like this week. And I was just yeah. like, Oh snap, that was sick. I remember right. that. And, and LDT obviously opted out before the year. They're right. Yep. There. So, I mean, they, other than Fisher, they I mean, Fisher even had missed some time with an injury. And they the Chiefs kept winning. You know, they faced good teams and they kept winning. So I, I really don't think – I mean, I know their offensive line didn't play well in this game, but it wasn't like they lost all, you know, four or five starters the game before. And, you know, I, I don't think Fisher is – he's a good player, but, you know, he also was like the worst player on the field last time they were in the Super Bowl. And I know that was Nick Bosa, not Jason Pierre-Paul or Shaq Barrett, and, and there is a difference. But those guys are, are pretty good, and I think Fisher is a tough matchup. You know, with Jason yep. Pierre-Paul, I don't. I think I'm trying to remember now actually who gave up the strip sack, uh, but in the in the Week 12 game. 
but I'm pretty sure it was Fisher to Shaq Barrett uh, down near the goal line and, and that he strip sacked Patrick Mahomes and thwarted a chief scoring drive early in that game. So, like I said, I don't really think Fisher would have changed the outcome. I know everybody's kind of acting like that was the case, but this was, for the most part, the offensive line the Chiefs had, had played with, obviously, Wiley and Remmer switching sides, maybe something they regret. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe they wish they would have kept Remmers on the right side. I don't know what the, you know. But I don't think it would have mattered. Again, like all those guys were getting beat. Uh, it was really a matter of scheme and Patrick Mahomes getting the ball out to check downs a little bit faster than he did. Um, and he didn't do those things. And so the other thing to, to think about is, is Todd Bowles, yes, you're right. He's a predominant blitzer, like you said, but his three lowest blitz rates yeah. of his tenure have come against Andy Reid teams. Yeah. It's even, wild. Yeah. And even back in week 12, that was, I think, one of his lowest, maybe his lowest before this. Yeah, one the season. week twelve game was Todd Bowles' lowest blitz rate. They were about thirteen yeah. percent of his career, and then he hit it at nine percent right. in the Super Bowl game. Right, so That's yeah, the, that to me is fascinating. It's yeah. been. Against read offenses, he just won't send. He just figured I can't send pressure against this guy. I think that's the case. Yeah, I think one of the big reasons is that you have to commit numbers to coverage so often. I mean, they don't max protect all that often, so you, you've you've got a lot of comp, you've got a lot of options out in the in the route tree that you've got to you know contend with, obviously. And the other part of it is that you feel like you really need to double Tyree Kill probably after what happened last time. And you can't really do that as well if you're committing a ton of numbers. Same with Kelsey to a degree. There were times in the second half in the Week 12 game that they doubled both of them. So I think all of that, I say all that to culminate, you know, I don't think there was ever an intention to blitz Andy Reid heavily. He sent some just straight-up crazy pressures that I've never seen him send um, early in the game, maybe the first two, and then yeah, once the, you know, then he's kind of settled in and realized, all right, we can get pressure with four and, like, just fine because – it's honestly, if you send a free guy off the corner, Patrick Mahomes is going to not get sacked by him. Like, he just isn't. When's the last time you saw a free guy come in and take down Mahomes? It just it just doesn't happen. He just senses him. He moves around. He gets the ball out. You know, it just – so it's, like, kind of useless to do it. So I think that plus read screen game, you know, always scares people. I know they haven't been as good at the screens this year, but – I think everybody's always aware of that with Andy Reid, and so you don't want to overblitz because of that. And he's got so many quick game concepts that it's – again, like you just got to be cautious. So I think that's what the approach he was going to take regardless, and, and certainly the ability to get pressure for, with four helped him maintain that approach. Yeah, that uh, that lowest blitz rates against Reid is – it's done, it's so cool to see how – especially because Bowles and Reid were like on the same staff. Like, mm-hmm. like Bowles saw this Reid offense behind the curtain when he was in Philadelphia for 2012 as a secondary coach and then assistant head coach interim role uh, after, you know, they, they let go of Reid. Now, that plus this uh, this uh, early blitzing, right, which I, I agree with you. Like it was like crazy stuff earlier. Like, oh, I'm about to run my usual defense. And then after the first couple of drives, they just sat in it. So they say it's four down. We're going to rush four. We're going to play twist and games up front. We're going to go too high. We're going to try to play two man behind. We're not going to blitz too much. Sometimes we're going to drop in a zone match. That's the approach. When you So the, the new Eagles defensive coordinator, Jonathan Gannon, he's from Indianapolis. They had the second lowest blitz rate of all teams this year at 17%. They had the highest rate of cover two man uh, halfway through the season when Matt Bowen kind of tweets out some of the coverage results. And they were a pretty good pass defense. So I'm curious, you know, you said earlier, right, Bowles, it's always about being gapped out against the run. We're going to be single high. We're going to have numbers in the box. We've been our best run defense for the last two years. But against a team like Mahomes, they just, they had to go, a team like Mahomes, a team like the Chiefs with Mahomes, they had to go two-man. They had to put split field. They had to put safeties deep and get that extra number, to discourage the deep pass, have extra numbers to play zone. When it comes to 
league trends on defense. Is this where we're heading? It's so, so much of defense has been, all right, we got to get numbers right to stop the running game. And then we're going to play the pass behind it using this, using that. Are we going to see cover two, split field, two high safeties, quarters? Are we going to see these ideas that have an extra secondary player, an extra player in pass coverage become more prevalent, especially against offenses like this, where you're just so terrified of the quarterback or just bowls against Andy Reid in general. You're so terrified of the designs. That's going to become more prevalent. And you're going to start seeing teams find more creative ways to be light in the box and stop the run. Do we think that is that this mold that Bowles put out? There's no you know blueprint for beating Mahomes, but in general, responding to top passing offenses, do we think we're going to see some of these traditional single high gapped out defensive coordinators start to adjust and be more too high teams? I hope so. I mean, they should. They should look at the evidence and the data, and they should say, "Oh, this is clearly." The way to go. I mean, just think about it. Quarterbacks win or lose, you know, you for you in today's NFL. There's no question. Like it's the most important position on the field. If you can get a great one on offense, you're in a good spot. If you can affect the one when you're on defense, you're in a good spot. So why wouldn't you start building your defense in a spot where you can affect the quarterback? What's the first thing the quarterback probably looks at when he gets to the line of scrimmage? He's looking at the safeties. What's their alignment? Is there single high? Is there, is there two high? Is the middle of the field open or closed? What's going to happen after the snap? Again, he's checking the same thing. He's checking the safeties. And so you know, I just think starting there makes complete sense. It's why Brandon Staley had so much success, right? He starts with the safeties. You know, he could start, he could show a two-high shell pre-snap and then rotate single right. high in the box. Right, because Staley was extremely heavy cover one, cover three, but it's just pre-snap, right. there's two. And so that's exactly telling right. you where you want to go, yeah. Right. So then it becomes hard, too, to read what that rotating safety is doing. You know, I know against the, the Bucks when the Rams did that, you know, that safety, a lot of the time, you know, they would – it would it would be the field safety and the field safety would roll single high, but then he'd just keep going to rob, to basically like rob the other side of the field. Um, he wouldn't stay in the middle of the field and read it out. He would just kind of take the first vertical to the other side of the field and just play really aggressive like that. And so where Brady saw him on the backside, you know, at the start of the snap, you know, and, and then the boundary safety would kind of come down into the box post snap. So Brady's like, okay, I can throw this seam. And then all of a sudden the other safety just takes straight off for it. So again, it was just kind of fascinating to see how Staley did things and think about things from that perspective. I hope it challenges other defensive minds to, to do that as well. The other interesting thing about what the Bucks did that I don't think many teams across the league are really doing this. I think Seth Galina actually wrote about it uh, in the offseason, maybe it was, or before the season, I can't recall, but it was three deep safeties. The Bucks did that on a few snaps. I think they had 10 snaps where they had three safeties on the field. They were in a dime defense against the Chiefs and – they had three safeties deep at the snap of the ball at least a, a couple times in the game. I know one play was where they sent the two corners blitz. I forget the name of the blitz. They blitzed two corners. Double and cat, he, right, yeah. Yeah, and he threw he threw it deep, and it kind of went off Hill's helmet, but Winfield also got his hand up and kind of interfered with the catch point a, a good bit. And so uh, that was one of them where they got a good result out of it. Again, that started with three high safeties. Um, you know, kind of Winfield in the middle of the field, Edwards, I think, to the boundary and Whitehead to the field. And then they got the interception too later off of it. You know, they started with three deep safeties. And then uh, what they did was they blitzed both linebackers. Winfield and Whitehead kind of flew up into the middle of the field zones where Levante David and Devin White would have been. And then Mike Edwards was single high and he made the play on Tyree Kill. He tips the ball, breaks it up, and Winfield picks it off. So again, I say all that to say, I think that what teams are going to realize is that they have to build their defense on ways to affect the quarterback position. If you don't, it won't matter if you are a great run defense and you beat, you know, the, the giants and the Raiders. And if you can't be and design a team, that's going to beat the chiefs and the Packers and the saints. 
it's not going to matter. And thankfully, Bowles really seemed like he figured that out just in the nick of time because um, obviously right. it didn't fare super well in those situations in the regular season for the most part. And what then what Bowles did that took it a step further was not only did he commit numbers to coverage, he confused with who would be in coverage and who wouldn't. You know, so he goes three high safeties and he sends two corners. Then he goes three high safeties and he sends two linebackers. So it, it, he really messed up what Mahomes was was seeing and really what the offensive line was seeing. Uh, and the result was obviously a, a really good one for the Bucs. Yeah, it helps when the two linebackers you get to send are Devin White, LeBron, and David. Those, those kids are hammers. There's no oh, question, man. too, that you're right. Like That's a good point, though, because everybody's going to say, oh, we can do this. And maybe you can, but the fact that the Bucs had elite players was one of the reasons why – it was really frustrating to watch them in the regular season because you mm-hmm. could see enough flashes from all these guys. You know, it's, why is it Mike Edwards playing? There he goes, playing his most snaps of the Love whole year. Love Mike Edwards. Yeah, he plays his most snaps of the whole year in the Super Bowl. It's like, okay, like this is what we were talking about. Like, you know, it's like, why is it Carl Davis playing more press? Okay, he plays press. This is what we were talking about. Like, he's <laughs> right. Tom Zero receptions like, for Michael Thomas. Yeah, we could have like, done this earlier. I mean, it's – I yeah. So, again, it was like one of these things where we knew players were really talented – but they weren't getting any attention nationally. And and really, and some of them, you know, like Devin White and Sean Murphy Bunting, who were two of their best players in the playoffs, were two of their worst players, two of their only bad players in the regular season. I would say both of them, for the most part of the season, were not very good. And right. then toward the end of the regular season, Devin White was playing better. But Sean Murphy Bunting really was not playing well until the Washington game, even <laughs> he wasn't that great. I know he got the pick off the tip, but really the Saints game. I mean, that – Again, so being able to use your players in the position that best serves their skill set is crucial, and I don't think Bulls totally did that all year, but when it mattered, he did it in right. the playoffs, and that obviously was a great result. It was very funny to me to see the whole, like, oh, man, like, Todd Bulls, like, such a good defense coordinator after the Chiefs game, and appropriately so, because he made so many great decisions, but it was also like, yeah, he could have been doing this for a while. <laughs> like, <laughs> this was all available like, to him previously. I don't know why. Maybe maybe he played us. I don't know. Maybe he was right, exactly as a. <laughs> Uh, as Bill Barnwell said on his podcast, the entire season was one long play action for, I mean, for the Bucks. Byron right. Leftwich was just calling one play action play for 19 weeks, and all of a sudden, Super Bowl, there's the actual play action pass. Uh, this is a good, though, because my final question uh, is for, and this is what everybody gets on the show, uh, the unsung hero of that, which, which we just talked about, and whether that's a, a player or personnel who kind of makes this whole thing go, whether that's a positional coach. We just talked about this massive change for the Bucks defense. We talked about how they locked down the Mahomes offense better than any other defense has done before. It's being covered ad nauseum, so it's a tough ask for you. But who's the guy who you think's not getting enough credit for that effort and, and for the work the Bucks did on Sunday? Uh, player or coach or any? Your choice, dealer's choice. Who's the unsung hero? Um... You know, let's go with – there's a couple guys you could choose. Um, again, I think like you said, most people are, are being talked about. So let's go with Mike Edwards because I think – well, first of all, he gave them – first of all, here's a funny story. Bruce Aaron said they they thought Mike Edwards had tested positive for COVID on Friday, but it was Mike Edwards Sr. I don't know if that – I guess that's his dad – um, but Mike Edwards senior, te- so he got a text that freaked him out. He thought Mike Edwards, had de- and obviously he was going to be a big part of the game plan. You know, he played the most snaps I think he played of any game all season. And so he's kind of been like this hidden gem all season long, a couple of picks, lots of pass breakups. He's tipped the ball to Antoine Winfield on both of Winfield's interceptions this season. Um, you know, he has just been a playmaker and he's barely played. I mean, I, I don't know if he even hit 300 snaps on the season. I, I can't remember right now, but I mean, he, he is guy that just been, 
so good when he's been on the field. But like obviously that he's mostly a deep a single eye safety, and that's been Winfield's role, and he's been great. And Jordan Whitehead has been – he's the other guy I was going to choose actually for, for that because he's been so good all around all season. So they have three really good safeties, and then they went out and they played three safeties at a time and on some of the most impactful snaps of the game for the Bucks defense. So I think Edwards, yeah, I mean, obviously at the tip for the pick, and he was just kind of everywhere the whole game. And he raced Travis Kelsey on a couple plays that were just highly, highly impressive. He had a great season, and, yeah, he played 320 total snaps on the year. Again, the most uh, he went over 300, I guess it would have been in the Super Bowl maybe. And so just really, really impressive stuff for him. And he could have hung his head, you know, early in the season when he thought he was going to be the guy right before the regular season starts. They put Winfield, they say Winfield's the starter, and, you know, he goes to the bench. And I don't think he even played the first week of the season, and he just kept grinding and said all the right things. And then he makes a bunch of huge plays before the year's over. Right. That always feels good when you get one right. Edwards coming out of Kentucky was, all right, he's going to do everything for you, and he's going to play special teams, and he's going to solve problems. He's going to fill in for injury, and he's going to be high-quality dude that you like to have as your third safety. And there you are in Tampa Bay, and that's that's what you got to do this season. So that's nice. Uh, John, thanks for coming on. I appreciated the inaugural Solak show sans kissed. Thank goodness. Massive improvement. Uh, please go ahead. Yeah, it's big stuff. Uh, go ahead and make sure you share where people can find you, what you got uh, coming down the pipe as you finish up your your Super Bowl content. Absolutely. We uh, over at pewterreport.com, you can find lots of written content. Obviously, a lot of it's Bucks focused, but there will be a ton of draft stuff on there as well uh, coming up here in the coming days. And Bucks fans are like, what is the NFL draft? We've forgotten. Normally, <laughs> it's their focus in October, but not this year. Um, and so there will be that stuff to look forward to. I'll have a mock draft coming out. Monday or Tuesday next week, a 32-team mock, so everybody can yell at me from all the other fan bases since you've missed the opportunity to during the season. Uh, and then on the Pewter Report podcast, if people are interested, uh, we'll have Jason Light coming on on Thursday night. He's coming on 7.30 p.m. We go live four days a week, but he's coming on Thursday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, and he's going to talk about the Bucks free agents. So if you're somebody who's interested in the Bucks free agents, uh, go to YouTube, uh, search Peter Report uh, TV and subscribe to the Peter Report podcast, even just for that episode and hit the bell to get the notifications when we go live. So you don't forget. And Jason Light will be on. He'll talk about all their free agents, Chris Godwin, Shaq Barrett, Levante David, Rob Gronkowski, Antonio Brown, how they fared in Tampa, what their status is going to be going to the offseason and, and things like that. So should be a pretty educational time with him. He always gives really good stuff. Um, so that's kind of what's coming up for us. If he doesn't open with, uh, Chris Godwin's going to be a free agent. We're recommending he goes back to his home state of Pennsylvania to play for the Eagles. I'm logging off. Well, you're probably going to log off because Chris Godwin <laughs> isn't going to go anywhere. <laughs>